In the United States, the average 18-year-old has spent somewhere between 10 and 15% of their lives at school. Darylise, that actually doesn't sound like a whole lot of time, especially considering the impact school can have on a person. Yeah, I mean, after you add up the summer breaks, vacations, extracurriculars, and a whole lot of sleeping, young people don't spend all that much time at school. I wonder if the reason it seems like it'd be a higher percentage is that for young people especially, school can play a significant role in defining who they are. The main perception of me that I get is mainly from school. And being in a predominantly white school, I used to get a lot of people going, oh yeah, you're black, but you're whitewashed and stuff like that. That was Sienna McWhorter, a 17-year-old biracial girl who goes to high school in a suburb of Sydney, Australia. I originally connected with Sienna when she contacted me about a school project she was doing. I'll let her explain it. I reached out to you in relation to a project I'm doing for one of my wage works for my class, Society and Culture. And in that class, I have to do a personal interest project. And I'm doing mine on racial identity and my experiences as being biracial and looking at a comparison of biracial to monoracial understanding of identity and how social conventions and stereotypes and norms, how they all impact how a biracial person might have an identity in comparison to a monoracial person. It struck me as really special that on the other side of the world, Sienna was exploring some of the same questions we've been asking with this On Being Biracial podcast. And she found plenty of points of overlap in her research, which extended to her personal experiences too. Here's Sienna speaking about some of the things her monoracial peers have said to her. And they're like, oh, you're not really black. You're not really like brown and all this. I'll be like, I am. And they're like, no, you're so whitewashed and all this. So I've had that. But then when like with outside, I guess, like sports or like outside curriculums. They don't see me like every day and stuff like that, but they also don't view me as, you know, oh, you're whitewashed. They just see me as brown, I'm guest mixed. So it's like I have a lot of different perceptions for me, like school and then other curriculums. I feel like a lot of people tend to see me differently depending on how much they see me and how they know me well. My closer friends, they all know that I like identify as mixed and they know that I am actually half black. I'm not just really tan, as I've been told in the past. No, I am. Speaking of who people are, we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Malcolm Burnley, a multiracial journalist. And I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a biracial journalist. This is the fourth episode of this season of the On Being Biracial podcast. To return to our earlier points, school isn't just the place where we learn facts and figures. It's also a social incubator where we realize parts of ourselves and discover who we are in relation to others. We've talked a lot about race as a social construct so far in the series, so it should come as no surprise that social systems and ideas about race are uniquely intertwined with educational outcomes and experiences. There's a long history of the American public school system being used to reinforce white supremacy, segregation, and disenfranchisement, not only prior to, but long after Brown v. Board of Education. In episode eight, we'll be speaking about how families, upbringings, generational trauma, and at-home dynamics influence our understandings of race and how we fit or don't fit in. What happens at home definitely has an impact, but we also wanted to look at other spaces that have a formative effect. Specifically, we're looking at multiracial experiences at school and at work, two spaces that tend to have deterministic impacts on people's life trajectories. 
Sienna has acquired healthy ways of dealing with people's ignorance at school. But the other side of that coin has been learning what kinds of people she prefers to surround herself with. With my friends, especially my best friend, I'll say, if I've struggled, if I've been called names, like during class, someone does something and it's a bit racist, you know, just like we don't get violent or anything like that. If I stand up for myself and then after that I doubt myself, I go, oh, was I in the wrong? They support me by going, like validating it in a way. No, you're right to stand up for that. This person's just being close-minded or something like that. They are being racist and they offer me support in like validating me. They don't speak for me. They let me speak for myself because it's my experience and they just support it and say, you don't understanding her. You need to listen. If they're trying to talk over me, my friends would go, stop, listen to her. So they kind of give me the floor, but they're supporting me. That's really the exact thing that allies are supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. School is a place where we bump up against the reality that not everyone shares our same values, upbringings, or levels of cultural awareness. Those differences can feel magnified for multiracial kids because a sense of kinship and community can be less clear to begin with. Sometimes we find these differences in fellow students. Other times they show up in the form of teachers or in the structures and policies of the education system itself. Speaking of having all black teachers, my first ever white teacher was a white man. I talk about this in the other podcast that we work together on. And it was a terrible experience. He was just a terrible teacher in general. Azaria Keys was one of my fellow hosts of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, which is the podcast she's referencing. Azaria is also the assistant director of the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture at the Fox School of Business at Temple University. It was my third grade class, and the entire class is pretty much black and brown kids. And I started getting in trouble a lot with him, which was weird because my mom was like, she's never gotten in trouble to this extent. So she was having to come in for a lot of parent-teacher meetings. We've talked about this multiple times. And her view of the conversation that went down between them was, he said something along the lines of, I'm just trying to do the best I can with these students. So many of them, like Azaria, don't have fathers. And my mom was like, excuse me, <laughs> my child has a father. Whether the father is there, whatever the circumstances are, don't just other these children because it doesn't look like the family makeup that you have or are used to. I think she protected me and shielded me from that conversation when I was younger. She didn't tell me until I was older. But I didn't even have to know he said that to know that's how he treated me. So that was my first real encounter with a white elite man thinking that he was better than me. And I'm a third grade little girl trying to navigate just growing up. We'll put a link to the Demystifying Diversity podcast episode that Azaria mentioned in the show notes. You know, the story she tells about how that white teacher treated her and the other BIPOC students in the class like they were beneath him is something I've come back to again and again when thinking about this episode because of how painful it must have been for impressionable young people to be treated that way by someone in a position of authority. And even though in hindsight, Azaria can see that the teacher had something of a white savior complex and was projecting his own feelings of inadequacy onto her and onto others, the impact of his behavior was eviscerating at the time. The education system is supposed to be helping young people reach their full potentials, but when it supports marginalization, discrimination, and othering, it harms more than it helps. Sienna told me about an experience at school that she referred to as the hair incident. For context, it's helpful to know that her mother is from Grenada in the Caribbean and her dad is a white Australian of Scottish and Welsh descent. I've been at the same school since kindy. 
and practically we're not allowed to wear we can wear braids but we can only wear two braids or one braid you can't have box braids or cornrows or anything like that it's literally put in our school diary that you cannot have it like perfect and practically whenever I wear them because part of my culture and all that I get told to take them out and once I had them take them out when I was at school what do you mean you had them take they took them out for you they told me to take them out and I had to sit there instead of being in school taking out my braids and having the sick bay nurse help me take them out because it was a distraction because another boy was playing with my hair on so many levels that's just so wrong yeah but then there was a case where the school captain who is identifies as white was wearing cornrows and she was not told to take them out wow what is a school captain so a school captain is practically a year 12 student who represents the whole of senior school so that's 7 to 12 they're like a leader in a sense like a student teacher in a way Got it. So all the power and privilege of... Yeah. Yeah. So was that brought to the school's attention and what was their response? There was no response. She didn't get in trouble or anything. My sister was in the same year as her. My sister was just like, you know, what the hell? Sienna lives in Australia, but the hair incident tracks with a general pattern in the US of Black and biracial students being disciplined at disproportionately high rates. In one study, researchers found that Black students were 3.5 times more likely to receive a suspension or detention than their white counterparts, while multiracial students were slightly less likely at three times more likely than their white counterparts to receive such punishments. And out of that latter group, Black multiracial students were punished more severely than non-Black multiracial youth. So as we've been sharing this season and in our last season featuring youth voices, there are a lot of nuances that come into conversations of racial identity and experience, and a lot of variety among and between all racial groups, but perhaps particularly among different multiracial populations. Right. And at the same time, those statistics point not only to individual bad actors like Azaria's former teacher, but to the systemic conditions that create problematic outcomes. Outcomes that vary wildly based on race. Sienna spoke about the distinction between individual racism and how flawed systems fail to treat multiracial youth as full, whole, multifaceted, integrated people who often carry multiple cultural identities and who want to bring the fullness of themselves into their educational environments. And it's not all teachers. I've had so many teachers that have been amazing at that school and are so supportive of me. It's maybe not the teachers or the staff themselves, but the rules they have to uphold because they can get fired. And like, I understand that. I don't want them to get fired. They're just doing their job, but it's the rules that have to change. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To find out more, go to resolvephilly.org PJC. As Malcolm alluded to earlier, the education system has long been used as a means to subjugate people of color around the world, and especially in the U.S., to white power structures. 
We can't cover all that history here, but it bears mentioning that multiracial youth, by virtue of their very existence, have had a historically adversarial relationship with the American education system. In 1955, a Mississippi judge and famous segregationist named Thomas Brady wrote that one of the many dangers of integrating public schools was that it would promote interracial interactions and relationships. Here's a quote from one of his decisions. Constantly, the Negro will be endeavoring to usurp every right and privilege, which will lead to intermarriage. They will grow up together, and the sensitivity of the white children will be dulled. 1955 may feel like a long time ago, but Brady's views have remained deeply embedded. We often hear about systemic white supremacy, which is endemic for sure, but so is this monoracial lens that has been baked into so many of our social systems, including our education system. And even today, in a system that was originally intended to maintain strict boundaries based on race, the mere existence of biracial kids can be seen as undermining those ideas. Unfortunately, young people who ought to be handled with love, care, and respect have to endure not only oppressive systems, but people within schools who struggle to see beyond their own biases. There's a lot of behavior that occurs in schools that may not be overtly racist, yet still creates othering and feelings of inadequacy, even in the absence of conscious malice. For example, Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, a psychologist and children's book author, told Darylise a story about how she and her sister were singled out on the basis of their last name, Ortiz, and how assumptions about them made them feel inadequate. When I was in elementary school, my sister and I were called out of class. We're told to go to the principal's office, which is super scary when you're a little kid. I think I was six. And then I saw my sister walking down the hall and I was like, what's going on here? And we got brought down because our last name is Ortiz. And they wanted us to speak to the new kids that came in in Spanish because nobody spoke Spanish at the school. And here my sister and I are like six and eight years old and we don't speak Spanish. I remember as a little six-year-old actually feeling really bad. I felt really guilty that I didn't speak Spanish and that I couldn't help. Like it felt like you were a disappointment, like you let them down. And then, you know, as an adult looking back, that's like pretty inappropriate to be calling (laughs) these kids out of class that because their last name is Ortiz, you're like, oh, they must speak Spanish. It's like, no, you just needed to get a translator for yourselves. But to me, it wasn't that it was so horrible, but it made me feel bad about myself. I think that the piece that I do feel like is, has a negative, that I felt badly. I felt this was one of the first times in my life I felt like I wasn't Spanish enough. I wasn't Puerto Rican enough, which has been a theme being a multicultural person is that I've been told that outright. I've been told, well, you don't even speak Spanish or you're not Spanish enough, or what do you, you don't like beans? What's wrong with you? Or whatever that might be. And that feeling of being inadequate in your culture is not a good feeling. Singling young people out on the basis of incorrect assumptions about their race can cause them to feel badly about themselves. And many of the people we interviewed who identify in a variety of ways, but who came from multiracial backgrounds, shared about experiencing feelings of inadequacy as a result of things that happened or didn't happen at school. We heard a lot of stories that were both overtly and covertly traumatic. Some of them were things that happened with peers and others with educators and administrators. Let's start with sharing about things that happened with teachers and administrators, because frankly, the things we were told, Malcolm, continue to haunt me and make me sad about the state of our education system. Me too. Rachel Lauren, a Black DEI practitioner, told me about a traumatic experience she had at her predominantly Black high school in suburban Chicago. At that time, she identified as mixed. I was in high school. I had a a white teacher that 
taught history. He was a young teacher. We all admired him because he would do like reenactments. He would try to make learning fun for us. And so we enjoyed his class and we got to the slavery portion of history class. And he actually played a audio of like sea sounds and tied us up together and pretended we were on a slave ship and that he was master. And the crazy thing is at that time, I still didn't understand the gravity of it. And so that actually speaks to the harm that can happen to children when they don't understand race as a contract itself and know what to look for. I was ashamed when I got older and realized what had happened and that I didn't understand it at the time, didn't stand up for it at the time. It was a Black teacher, an English teacher that saw it happening. She happened to walk past our class and she stopped it and it turned into a whole ordeal. She involved the school board. And so it was actually her that pointed out that it was a problem. And it took some time for me to like reconcile with the fact that I didn't understand that. But then also you look at Texas, how they're taking what they're calling critical race theory out of schools. I have children that are in school there. Just thinking of what that could even do. When I was in a school that taught about slavery and taught about like true history to some extent, it's scary to think about what can develop in a child's mind if you don't prepare them. One of the things that struck me as truly terrible about that is that Rachel said he was a teacher that all the kids liked and admired, who was trying to bring history to life. And neither the students nor the teacher himself realized how damaging that exercise was until another teacher saw it and stopped it. There's no denying that preparing young people is important and that we want to make them aware of historical realities. But we have to look at what we're preparing them for and how we're equipping them. There's been so much damage done in the name of education that looking back is actually cultural erasure and indoctrination into a system of white supremacy. It makes me wonder, how often does education become perpetration? I spoke with Drew Amon, the project director of the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, about the erasure of indigenous languages and culture through the education systems in the U.S. and Canada whether that happened gradually and a less oppressive way or whether it happened with people, kids being taken away from their homes and put into boarding schools where they weren't allowed to speak their own languages. Yeah, I think it's just one of the ugliest parts of our history. It doesn't really get talked about a lot. I mean, I think that's consistent with some other things that we don't talk about very much in this country. And I was reading recently a quote there's a book called i don't know if you're familiar with elements of style so there's an elements of indigenous style and it talks about how to use language and terms and names and styles and how they're not locked in and they evolve and you want to be conscious of these things because decolonization of language it happens over time and we're not at a fixed point in history And there were some interesting things, some of which are things that I think about, some of which I hadn't. For instance, if I'm referring to the tribes that I work with, I wouldn't say Virginia's seven federally recognized tribes because they're not part of Virginia. Those are sovereign nations. So you could say the the sovereign nation, indigenous nations that are within the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it might sound like semantics, but It really is the way we talk about things, and it has an impact on the understanding of those things. Yeah. I mean, language both reflects and is reflective of ideology. So if we're looking to shift 
people's paradigms, it's important to be mindful about what's said. And also, I think what's said and how people say it really illuminates how their thinking works. Totally. Yeah. All of this can seem conceptual and distant until the harms of erasing language are made real through people's stories. Tyler Sloan is an actor and artist who shared how their access to language was overtly stripped away during their school years. Tyler is from Canada, yet temporarily moved to New Zealand before returning to Canada again. And when I came back to Canada, the immigration and migration was very difficult. It was not as common as folks may know or experience now. I got put through speech impediment classes to try to take out the Maori New Zealander Kiwi accent because I wasn't speaking proper Canadian English. I faced a lot of racism. And because I lived in a predominantly white community, in my grade alone, which was like about 150 people all the way from K to 12, there was like five of us that were people of color. And most of those people didn't arrive until I got into high school. So when I came in grade one, I'm experiencing a lot of racism. I was in a speech impediment class with one person who was from Newfoundland. And Newfoundland has like a very thick dialect accent and someone who'd become a friend of mine from Florida who had that Southern accent and all three of us were being put through this thing to get rid of that cultural speak that we grew up in. That's so violent. Um, It was very violent. Violence came up a lot over the course of our interviews, particularly when people spoke about their interactions with peers. And the stories we heard span the spectrum from subtle acts of othering to overt physical aggression. Rachel Goh, one of the creators and hosts of the Mixed Movement podcast, was raised by two white parents and identified as white until after she herself became a mother. She told me about how she dealt with a lot of microaggressions during her school years. Pretty much my entire school career, from a little girl all the way up until after I graduated, I felt like I had to explain my family dynamics to my peers every single year. At the beginning of the school year, Or when I went from grammar school into junior high and then explain it further into high school and it became redundant and exhausting to feel like, wow, nothing about you makes sense. Explain over and over again. Sarah Gaither, a psychologist at Duke University, dealt with othering as well, even when all she was trying to do was play Barbies. And it wasn't until second grade when I had my first racist encounter, when my black grandmother had given me a black Barbie doll and a white kid at school had told me, oh, she can't be Barbie because she has brown skin. To me, that didn't make sense because all of my toys looked different. That was my norm. But as a, a young kid, until you have these direct questioning or denial types experiences, you don't know that your norm isn't the norm for other people. And so I think my experience was a little bit later than people who look more phenotypically black, at least for black, white, mixed race kids themselves. I still had this kind of encounter experience, which is something that I study now and how we develop our racial and ethnic identities. What do you think that experience when you were in the second grade, how did that impact you? It was confusing. Thinking back to my second grade self, I know I came home really upset trying to ask my parents why this girl had told me she wasn't a Barbie when I saw her come in the pink Barbie box. It was from my grandmother who I loved and I was very close to. And so I was really confused. I went to a private school growing up and it was a predominantly white class. My teachers were also white and they didn't know the right ways to respond. And so their sort of solution was clearly our class didn't have enough Black exposure or Black representation. So 
they started reading Rainbow Fridays as a way to see LeVar Burton as a Black exemplar role model for the class, which wasn't a horrible response. It did give some representation, but there was no discussion, right, for me as one of these mixed race kids in the classrooms for my dad being one of the few Black parents in the classroom, right? So I think it was a missed learning opportunity thinking now as a, a grown up, but at the time I was just confused and didn't understand why also this other white girl supposedly had so much more confidence and power than I did in telling me what type of toy I actually had and if my grandmother was supposedly a liar. So those were just lots of things to try and process in my little me. We heard about the subtle and insidious violence that can come from those whose compliments are in fact a perpetration of racism and colorism. The race has been always in my mind because in actually in school, I was one of the few visible Black person in my classroom since I was in kindergarten. And people say, Barbara, you are Black, but you are my friend. You are Black, but you're smart. You're Black, but you are bonita or cute, etc. So this is something that has been with me forever. And I have been struggling to accept and to avoid the internalized racism. That was Barbara Idelis Abadia-Rexash, an anthropologist and professor at San Francisco State University who grew up in Puerto Rico. She shared about how racism and colorism are endemic to the culture of what is a largely multiracial island, the difficulties she faced, and the cumulative impact of microaggressions. And then there were the outright overt aggressions and experiences of violence. We heard from several people about being bullied, attacked, and targeted at school because of their racial identities. John Blake, an award-winning journalist and author of More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew, shared about kids in his neighborhood picking fights with him when they discovered that his mother was white, which was upsetting not only because of the violence, but because, as the title of his memoir implies, John didn't have a relationship with his white mother until he was an adult. But that hardly mattered to the kids in his Baltimore neighborhood. And so what I tell people is I I grew up as a closeted biracial person. I wouldn't tell anyone that my mom was white. I mocked her race as black on school forms. None of my friends knew. It was a mark of shame in the world that I grew up in to have a white mom. So what did your friends think about your background or your parents? What were the assumptions that they made or what were the things that you told them? Well, in the black community, there's tremendous variety in how we look. Most black people are racially mixed. So there were other light-skinned people in my community. So in some ways I could pass, I was undercover. But when they would see me with my father in public, then the alarm bells would go off. My father was very dark and they would see him, but they wouldn't see my mom. And my father made it worse because he would introduce us as, here are my little half-breed sons. So (laughs) he wasn't really introspective about race. When they saw me and they saw my father, then we would get attacked. We would get physically attacked for having a white mom. We were fighting a lot. And I hated being called white boy, hunky. I remember vividly when we would get in fights, kids would circle us and say, it's a fight, it's the fight between an NIGR and a white. And I was the white. Being multiracial can create a double bind in an environment that is set up to view race as a binary. And to continue the conversation about violence in school, Actor and playwright Carter O'Brien Ford had a really rough time in school in terms of how he was treated by his peers, and also how the administration reacted to his repeated victimization. 
All of these difficulties, we should note, could be directly linked to his biracial identity, which isn't to say that biracial identity is inherently problematic, but other people had a problem with Carter's identity, and as a result, they perceived him as a problem. Because he was black and white, as opposed to black or white, Carter's school life was pretty terrible. I didn't have a really good school life. My mother got politely asked for me to leave my public school because my racial ambiguity was turning good kids into bullies, as a quote. Here's the fuller story of how those good kids on both sides of the black-white racial divide began to bully Carter. I remember it, it all kicked off, and we had library class, which was we could go and read books, or we could, if you were quick enough to get to one of the free computers, you could just play games on the computer. And for some reason, these two kids, a white kid in sixth grade and a black kid in sixth grade, they started arguing over what Jesus looked like. And it was, is Jesus white or is Jesus black? And ultimately, it got so heated that every boy in my class joined it and was on one side of the room or on the other side, making points that Jesus was. And it became something that was weirdly, completely something else. It didn't feel like it was about Jesus anymore. It very much felt like it was suddenly the piece of the socially accepted segregation was like, well, we can keep doing this, but we need to know who's better. And it felt like that was the conversation that some of the people in the group were having. And we're all very young and it just got heated. And then the person who started the argument on the Caucasian side was notably losing. Turned to the only other boy in class who was still on the computer on addictinggames.com, which was myself, and said, how about we just agree that Jesus probably looked like Carter? And I had no response for anyone. Despite having no response, other kids took Carter's presence as an affront, and not long after that incident, Carter was in a gym class when one of his classmates started a fight with him. After that, fights became a regular occurrence. Carter was never the one to start them, but he frequently found himself under attack by white and black classmates. These quote-unquote good classmates would often target him, and he had no adult allies to whom he could turn. Be about once, maybe twice a week, that just randomly in the middle of the hallway, someone would just try to throw a fist or try to trip me or try to do something else. And then like I'd start a fight. It felt like every time I was in a class, I wanted to go to the bathroom while I was in class because no one else was allowed to go to the bathroom at the same time. But they started texting other kids in other classes who didn't have the bathroom key from that class yet, uh -huh. being like Carter's in the bathroom. Couldn't go to the bathroom between periods because that's when someone would see me go in there and then try to start a fight. And that was a difficult thing because it felt like very much a lot of the staff at the school saw me as a black kid, but none of the black kids saw me as a black kid. So trying to navigate the way that white adults versus white kids and black kids see me is, yeah, there weren't really any black teachers in my school. I would say in general, a black teacher would see me as a biracial kid for the most part and would understand that. They would treat me a lot of ways that the people at my church or my mom would be like, hey, you just need to protect yourself. This is how you grow up to be a good black man. But at that time, at that public school, I didn't have any black teachers. So there was pretty much no one to go to. Carter was singled out for abuse and ostracization, not because of who he was as a person, but because his identity made others uncomfortable and because he refused to pick a side. We don't mean to paint a completely bleak picture. Yes, many multiracial students experience challenges, and those stories are important to share. But there can also be unique privileges to being multiracial. Not to mention there are many supportive educational environments and supportive teachers. Every person's story is different. 
Wait a minute, Darylise. Weren't you captain of your high school volleyball team, voted most fun to be around in middle school, and one of the most popular kids at your school? Okay, someone did their journalistic homework. Yeah, I'd say that overall, I had very positive school experiences, but I was also a chameleon. I fit in everywhere and nowhere. And when I look back, I wonder if some of that had to do with race. What about you, Malcolm? What were your experiences of school like? Well, I would say it was a mixed bag. I never felt like I belonged to my mostly white schools, which stemmed from things said by both teachers and students. I remember once when my third grade teacher singled me out. She said that I was stronger and more easily able to hurt other kids at recess as a way to deter what was just normal roughhousing on the playground. Wow, that's awful. Yeah, and because the teacher said it, I definitely put more weight behind it, which made it more painful. And my classmates said plenty of hurtful things too. I got called the N-word a few times in middle school, and at the same time, I was often getting made fun of for being racially ambiguous, so I kind of got it from both sides. And despite the fact that I was racialized in negative ways, though, I was always physically safe and got good grades. So, you know, it really was a mixed bag. That reminds me of something Sarah Gaither from Duke University shared that I'd never even considered. According to her research, receptivity in learning may actually be different among biracial children, at least early on in life. Some of our other cool developmental findings show that biracial kids between the ages of five and seven or so seem to be a little more flexible in who they're willing to learn from. So there's this very strong pro-white bias that lots of kids are unfortunately learning in our society, regardless of what their racial backgrounds may be, who's in leadership positions, who's featured in beauty ads, those kinds of things. And we find that biracial black, white, and Asian white children actually can learn pretty effectively and prefer to learn from both white, black, and Asian teachers, respectively. Whereas if you look at monoracial Asian kids, monoracial black kids, monoracial white kids, they all have a slight more tendency to want to learn from white teachers. So you do see this, again, this exposure to two different races at home is making kids a little more flexible in who they're willing to learn from as well. So the big caveat to this work, though, is all of our samples, I think, so far have been from two-parent households. There's very little work out there for any biracial person who's grown up with just one source of input from one cultural background or from one parent. So I think that's a big big missing opportunity within the field right now to understand how that lack of exposure to one background may actually reduce flexibility, right, or preferences in these ways. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events and become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media. Evan Fong-Jeroff, a former finance professional who is currently in the midst of creating a Chinese-Cuban fusion sandwich shop in mixed-race space, talked about how his identity as a biracial person came with certain in-school privileges and pressures. I remember in high school writing an article, I think it was titled like The Real Deal on Diversity, and I looked at our mission statement for the school and 
it talked about wanting to be a diverse place, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, mm. et cetera. And then I looked at our leadership of the school and the faculty and I said, okay, I mean, this does not add up. If you're saying all these things, you're not really delivering in them. You know, we published that on the school paper. It was an editorial. I didn't think that much of it. And then administration, they wanted to talk to me. And yeah, I think it did have some influence on future hirings for teachers. And also, yeah, I mean, I don't ascribe this. I'm sure there are many other things that were going on, but then we had a first head of school who was a person of color. Like I think it got into the psyche a bit. And then I remember, I don't think I was even that vocal, but that was a time where I stepped back and said, hold on, we're appearing to be one thing, but in reality, we're not. And then I remember, I think my like senior descriptor was Mr. Diversity. And I was like, okay, I don't even really know what that means. But like, I was just then getting earmarked for talking about these types of issues or wanting to talk about them, even if there wasn't really a forum for it. I think that happened. I was on the diversity committee in college. I was able to join this, the program called Inroads to help me secure an internship, which was for folks from minority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So maybe I then started to just lean into it more and want to find forums to talk about it. Yeah. And I think whether we want to talk about race and identity or not, we're often thrust into environments that bring identity questions to the forefront. Malcolm, I like how earlier you framed things as privileges and pressures, because that's something that came up a lot when I spoke to my sister, Tyla, a psychology teacher at a boarding school about being biracial and not coming from money while growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, which for anyone not familiar is a very affluent, very white town. I do think it's a predominantly white town. I was the only kid of color all through until middle school, maybe until sixth, seventh grade, like in my Mm -hmm. elementary school, I feel like for sure. And then I got this athletic scholarship to attend a private school. It's really changed my life. Very few kids of color. But I think at least in private school, there were some spaces. There was a space called SCORE where we could all get together, like an affinity space. So that was amazing. But I got more of those, what are you questions because I was in such a predominantly white space that I like clearly looked different than my peers. Looking different was a big issue for Tyla. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that even as her sister, I didn't realize what a big issue it was until she was looking at colleges. And one of her number one requirements was to find a diverse school. Many of those we spoke with described college as being formative and shaping their relationships with a lot of aspects of their identities, race being one of them. For example, I spoke with Hannah Wallace, a nonprofit professional in Philly, about her experiences at Temple University. I started out studying sociology, but I wanted to focus on race. And at one point, I connected with a professor in African American studies at Temple University and told him what I was hoping to do. I was like, I'm studying sociology, I would focus on history, legacy, and current state of race in America. And he's like, why are you studying sociology then? Because they talk about that in sociology. And he's like, do they really? And it was one of those things where I'm like, yes and no. I'm like, yes, but there's so many different attributes to what makes a society. And many times it's a footnote because I only had, no, I never had any black sociology professors. All of my sociology professors were always white men. I didn't even learn about Du Bois at all, like the black sociologist right. in those classes wow. while taking sociology. And So all of that together, I'm like, I need to get into African-American studies because these are the conversations that they're having every day. These are the conversations I want to have. So I changed majors. I kept sociology as a minor because, you know, love those credits. 
through my studies in African-American studies, I really became more steeped in the notion of Pan-Africanism, which Africans anywhere connect with Africans everywhere. That conversation, that community is not a community that is looking for interracial anything, really. And I believe that peacemakers exist everywhere. But Africa first thinking, which is a state of mind that keeps close to my heart, while in school, definitely had some conversations, warred with myself, thought some things of myself and of my family that I've now changed my mind about. In episode eight, you can hear about an experience Hannah had in class, which made her feel as if her interracial family was a mistake. For the record, she no longer feels that way, but definitely some of these moments that happen with the education system can bring up negative feelings amongst us multiracial people. That goes for seemingly positive experiences as well as negative ones. Drew Amon told me that when he was in college, he was so eager to learn more about indigeneity that he signed up for a class that he really wanted to take. He was hoping the class would teach him more about his culture and ancestry. But then when he actually went to that class, he grappled with wanting to belong and feeling like in order to do that, he had to keep his indigenous identity, the identity about which he'd been so curious, hidden. I'm thinking about being in college and taking a Native American films course and being pretty excited about it. And then the first day, everyone goes around the room and introduces themselves and what their interest was in the class. And when it got to me, I was, I can't divulge that I'm the only person who has a history with this culture because then I'm either going to be the person who everyone's nervous around or the person who's going to be identified as the token representative of all of these people. And as a result, I just didn't say anything about it. And I just mimicked some of the other answers and kept it very superficial. And then I was really mad at myself after the fact because I felt like a phony and I felt like I was representing myself as something other than what I truly am for the sake of just skating by. And then I later made an appointment with the professor of that course during office hours to explain this and to say, I'm not sure I can be in this class because it's really complicated for me. I'm feeling a lot of complex feelings that I haven't really wrestled with in a long time, if at all, as a fully grown adult. And I'm worried about wrestling with my own identity and how I'm representing myself, but also the sadness that I'll probably be able to identify with in observing some of these texts in a way that the other people in this class can't, even though they might think it's sad, I will feel that it's sad. And I just remember that being maybe the first time when I realized how complex it is, my relationship with being biracial. And that's repeated itself a few times in my adulthood where I've been in that circumstance. Just as a side note, did you withdraw from the class or did you continue with it? I continued with it. It was a slog at times. The professor did a really good job. And I thought at least if she knows what I'm going through, she can help shepherd me through it if she's a thoughtful enough person. And I don't know if that affected the way she taught the class, but I was glad that I shared it with her and at least one other person knew. And that made me feel, it made me feel a little bit better. 
Being known as a multiracial person can be different than being known as a marginalized monoracial person. My sister and I spoke about being in spaces where we've been actively welcomed, while at the same time having aspects of our identities devalued and dehumanized, which can be a strange and unsettling experience. Let's return to my conversation with Tyla. Well, but then I remember like when you went to college, a lot of the rhetoric around race was anti-whiteness, which I think for both of us has been a little bit challenging given our relationships with our mom, but I'm not sure like how it was for you. Yeah, I think that's true. I think what I've always struggled with or what I still struggle with is like we love our mom and our mom is white and white supremacy dictates so much of what's wrong in our society and how do we love ourselves when part of us is white and our mom is white who we love yet this has been so harmful and i think in college some of the spaces that were most supportive for my identity growth we had this liminal race dialogue space where we would come together and just talk about race as a spectrum and the student of color meditation group where we just come together and meditate. Those spaces felt really nourishing. But sometimes what I struggled with was, yeah, just that reconciliation of I'm part of that too. And how do I love myself or love my mom when we hate white people or something, you know? It was during college that Jewel Love, founder of Black Executive Men, felt like he made a conscious choice to identify solely as Black, as opposed to mixed or biracial. In high school, college, 20s, early 30s, I started to identify, well, I'd say more in college, as a Black man. That's really when I learned more so about race and the history of race as well in the United States, specifically the one-drop rule All of that. And I said, oh, okay. well, in that case, even though I'm mixed and clearly mixed, I guess I I am black. That's seemed to be categories here and I need to choose. That was my experience in college going to UC Santa Barbara. They had the black dorms. They had the black hall. And then they had what seemed to probably be about 60 percent, if not higher, white people. I don't know those numbers exactly, but it's definitely a majority And that was newer for me growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's very multicultural. There was no racial majority there. Just very, you got just all the people in the colors of the world, seemingly. So it was more in that college era that I really felt as though I had to choose and I did choose. And the black community welcomed me in with open arms and said, come over here. You belong with us. Noura El-Marzouki, an Egyptian-American who's lived in both Egypt and the United States, spoke about the painful experience of being misunderstood in both countries. In Egypt, she was seen as the American, and in the U.S., she was seen as Egyptian. But in Egypt, even though she didn't always feel seen as her full, whole, integrated self, Noura felt wanted and welcomed, whereas in the United States, she felt rejection and ostracization, and like she was being asked to prove and or defend herself. I didn't feel this real connection to Arab identity until I moved back to the U.S. for college. Because as my younger years, it was just like, that was my experience. I moved to Egypt and in Egypt at my school, I was the American. And when I came back to the U.S., it was in 2002. I was studying international relations at a very Zionist university. And 
I suddenly became this representative that I never felt like I was a representative. It's like, oh, you lived in Egypt. So tell us, why do they hate us? I just remember this question over and over again. Why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? And I'm like, my mother is a redheaded, white, blue-eyed woman. As Americans, you live with a red carpet in front of you in a place like Egypt. Literally, you are of a higher value. And that's seen in all different ways. Yet I was being constantly asked this. And so it wasn't until I was in college that I actually started to learn more Arab literature and deepen my Arabic in a non-religious way. And, and that's where I started to really sense more of a connection and that I'm more to really see how that's a part of me, I guess you could say. Throughout those years of college, it felt like I was constantly trying to defend my people, constantly trying to prove that this is BS, like what you all have in the media is BS and stuff like that. And eventually found that I didn't feel welcome here. I didn't feel accepted. It didn't matter what my degree was. I wasn't getting any of the jobs that I should have been getting here in the US. And I felt like I could utilize my skills and my knowledge, my education better in Egypt. And the reality is, as an American citizen with an American degree, I had a lot of privilege there. Although Nurla's experiences must have been difficult, I appreciated her acknowledgement of complex dynamics. She spoke about pain at the same time she spoke about privilege, which, although my own experiences are vastly different from hers, parallels some of my own emotional process. At the same time I recognize my identity can make me an outsider, it has also offered me access. And that's a dichotomy that came up a lot over the course of our interviews. It did. And to your point, Malcolm, the experiences described to us underscored some of our own experiences and observations. It also felt really affirming that the research about biracial identity and experience seemed to parallel the stories that emerged during our conversations. Sarah Gaither shared her experiences as a biracial person, her research and her work as a college professor and advisor, and affirmed that college can be a time when people of multiracial ancestry begin to exert themselves and their identities in different ways than before. She said that college can be an empowering time for students in terms of claiming their identities, but that identity fluidity can also be alienating, especially when who we're told to be in our families isn't the same as who we're told to be by our peers. As a college faculty trained advisor, I just did a session for how to talk with multiracial college students, right? Things you might not know working with them. And one of the things I actually stress is Usually when students are having an anxiety attack or they're having a difficulty in school of some sort, you say, oh, you will talk with your parents. Sometimes that's actually a big stressor point for multiracial kids because of this, what we call incongruence or congruence, right? With how my parents want me to identify. Similar to my parents always want me to go to medical school, but I really don't want to go to medical school, right? These same kinds of pressures that you experience. So that mismatch can create this other sense of identity confusion, this identity questioning experience and The other thing that's really common for multiracial people is a lot of people still aren't necessarily in favor of interracial marriage. Myself, I haven't met half my white or my black side of my families because they didn't like that my parents got married to each other, right? And so there's this other source of ambiguity, right, about a person's heritage that you don't get access to through your family. There's not, again, a one-size-fits-all answer to your question, but I think, again, the healthiest outcomes tends to be to let that person find that path to identify how they want. The other thing I would say is most multiracial studies in any field would argue that a multiracial person changes their identities a couple times across their lifespan. So it's not that anyone's expecting you to necessarily identify the same way, 
every time of year, if you move to a new city, right, that's going to shift your identification. So you're not weird, right? If you are identifying as one thing when you're with your family, and then when you leave and go to college or whatever the case may be, all of a sudden you think, oh, I never knew there was this Latino student group before, right? And this is really connecting me with that part of myself in a new way. So I think it's normal, right? Is what I tend to tell students all the time when they're saying, hi, ditching my family by only claiming one side of me. And I'm like, it's whoever you want to be, right? Your identity is yours. And that's it. It doesn't actually belong to anyone else, but that's a really hard family discussion, right? Especially if you're in a white minority type of family construct. I do think this is a little bit different for dual minority biracial individuals. So if you're black Asian, black Latino, I think there's slightly different dynamics and those types of family structures, but yeah, that's, it's a tricky one. In episode three of this series, we shared about how multiracial people's self-identifications can be fluid and may vary over time. As students find themselves, they're often searching for places where they can find affinity with others. Sarah pointed out that college student racial or cultural affinity groups may function differently for multiracial students than monoracial or monocultural groups. There's a rise of multiracial student groups in college settings now in the United States and A big reason why those groups exist is because a lot of people don't feel like they're Latino enough to be in the Latino students group or whatever the case may be. But then you have this group of multiracial or multi-ethnic identified students who are all great and happy to be together in a group. They finally found a group. They belong somewhere, but they all have very different experiences. And so it's not functioning in the same way that a lot of other cultural affinity groups do necessarily. And that when one of them has an experience of discrimination or identity questioning or denial, You might be talking to someone else who's never experienced that at all, which I think is a very different community sense of belonging and coping option that is a little more challenging for multiracial people compared to some other racial or ethnic groups. At the same time, college can be a place where people feel free to be who they are when they're in supportive, affirming environments. Kat Dyson, a biracial visual merchandiser and planner, told me she spent her elementary, middle, and high school years feeling like she didn't fit in and shyly attempting to fade into obscurity, but that the grip of self-doubt loosened when she went away to school where she had the freedom to explore her own unique interests and aptitudes. Going to college, and I went to uh, Arcadia University in Philly. I think that's where a lot of people find their voices. They get to choose what they enjoy. They're a lot more free. It's a really long time to finally (laughs) be like, you know what? I can do this. I can be me. For some of those we spoke with, graduate school represented an additional opportunity to explore themselves and to feel more self-expressed. For others, it was yet another place to feel like an outsider. But let's transition away from the educational realm and talk about people's experiences in the workplace, because that's where assimilation to certain expectations becomes tied to people's ability to make their livings and to advance in their fields. And because of those stakes and the massive amount of time we spend at work, suddenly issues of identity in the workplace become issues of survival. Working Americans spend upwards of 50% of our waking hours at work. Which means that all in all, it's estimated that the average American will spend roughly 10 years of their lives at work. Sadly, that's 10 times more than we spend with friends and family and way more time than we spend at school. For Evan Fong Jeroff, pouring himself into his work resulted in success within the corporate realm. But that success came at a cost. I spent 12 years working in a large financial organization. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a big awakening maybe about two, three years ago 
where when I looked back at how I was operating, how I was speaking, how I was cutting my hair, what I was wearing, a lot of the feedback that I had been given either directly or indirectly were things that were shaping me into what leadership looked like within the organization, which I think is not uncommon that this organization has mainly older white men as the leaders. And these older white men talked a certain way, dressed a certain way, cut their hair a certain way. And there'd kind of be these microaggressions where I would have mentors say, hey, oh, your hair is looking a bit shaggy or, hey, that shirt, does that really go and fit? And I think I was so focused on trying to succeed within that type of organization that I said, oh, you're right. Thank you. Take all the feedback and alter how I looked, how I sound, what I said, what I didn't say. And I think there's definitely a point a couple of years ago where I realized how much I was holding my breath. I actually felt like a physical difference when you're operating in some of these spaces where you don't feel that you can share your true thoughts or your true self. And But I think that had happened slowly over a period of 12 years, but I'd gotten to a point where I think I, I thought, well, like, what is the point of holding all of this back and is it worth it? For Evan, it proved not to be worth it. As you'll later hear in episode seven, he stopped cutting his hair. He also began to use his middle name Fong professionally and to bring more of his full self forward. Also, as part of his transition to greater authenticity and self-expression, Evan left the corporate world and is pursuing his creativity and culture through his culinary passion through the creation of his sandwich shop and mixed race space. That's not to say that people can't find authenticity and self-expression in corporate environments, just that many BIPOC professionals, monoracial and multiracial, often express hesitancy to open up and express their fullest sense of identity at work for a variety of reasons, such as a fear of being singled out or the idea of stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is when a person of color holds the fear of confirming the real or imagined racial biases of their peers, which studies have shown can reduce performance due to the cognitive toll it takes on that person. Harvard Business Review has published compelling research demonstrating that when spaces aren't designed to allow for this holistic sense of self, BIPOC professionals are less likely to be considered for promotions and positions of leadership. Chantel Fitzgerald is the founder and CEO of Mindset Strategies, a leadership development firm that focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. She's carved out a professional path that is embracing of her identity as a multiracial person who grew up identifying solely as Black and finds that depending on the space she's occupying, she may now identify as Black, mixed, multiracial, based on the context. But before coming to a career she loves, Chantel had some negative experiences regarding race and gender in the workplace. Intersectionality is often at play in situations of workplace discrimination. I got laid off for the second time in my career when I moved my whole life from Philadelphia to Boston, only for it to not work out after a year. And that was devastating. And I do feel like there was some racism that was charged in my leaving that organization. My conversation with Chantel then went off in a different direction, but I thought it was important to follow up about what she'd said. You shared that your experiences in Boston seemed to have been impacted by racism, perhaps. Can you talk a little more about that? You don't have to name the company, but I'm just curious right. what your experiences were. Yeah. So basically, 
It was tricky. And this seemed to have happened to me a couple of times in my career where the person who hires you, that's why you're going there because the person who's hiring you, you had a great interview, you had a great connection, you know, you're ready to work for this person because you think that they're great. And so that's what made me decide to go to this company. But unfortunately, six months in, that great boss of mine ended up moving to a different department and we got a new boss. And that new boss ended up being a nightmare and was more like micromanaging and basically forced me to hire what happened to be a white male person and forced me to hire this person and train this person to then end up kicking me out of the organization. And that person ended up taking my spot once I left. I went to an attorney and talked about this experience. And they're like, you definitely have a case that is certainly legitimate. However, you are in your early 30s and we don't think that it's worth it for you. You have a whole career ahead of you. You don't want this to stain your reputation and be able to get another job somewhere else. So I suggest that you just keep quiet, take the severance package and go. And being the naive person that I am and believing this white male attorney who happened to be a civil rights attorney, apparently, I listened to him and I took the money and left. So that was unfortunate because that really was, I think, a racist move that the organization made. So that was my experience. Chantel used that negative experience as an incentive to build better leaders and now works with many organizations, including schools, nonprofits, small businesses, and Fortune 500 companies. She said that the work she's doing is rewarding, both in terms of the results she's seeing among the leaders she works with and the mental health benefits she's experiencing herself because she's doing work that allows her to show up authentically. I found it interesting that Chantel is a multiracial woman leading an organization that supports and facilitates the success of Black women. And Jewel Love is doing something similar with the organization he founded, Black Executive Men. In my work, specifically in the Black community, so I'm the head of an organization that's for Black men. Everybody yes. else on my staff is Black. I had to have one-on-one. And I'm the leader of the organization, yeah. I have to say. So I'm mixed. I mean, I've been mixed, but... I don't identify as a black man. I identify as a multiracial man. It's what I am and it's authentic. And I'm still passionate about leading this organization. My relationship with my father set the stage and foundation for this type of work. I still love the work. I'm passionate about it. If you need someone that identifies as a black man, it's not going to be a good fit. Just got to let you know. I want to be upfront with you about that. And everybody said, man, it's about the mission. We're on board. Let's go. So that is my journey. I'm at more at peace with it now than I've mm. been probably in a long time. I don't know about maybe ever before because as a kid, I just didn't think about it. So kind of hard to compare and contrast, but it's definitely a homecoming experience that I'm having. You know, interestingly, I met Jewel through Chantel. And to your point, Malcolm, the fact that they're both multiracial people who have a deep resonance with understanding of and connection to the Black community speaks to the importance of supporting people of multiracial ancestry and bringing all of who we are and all that we have to offer forward. This idea of being able to bring our full selves forward in our work and to be received in the richness and complexity of our identities is something that many people, myself included, long for and have strived to carve out, if we have the privilege to do so. 
Actually, it's why this podcast has been such a labor of love for me. For me as well. I feel really fortunate and try not to take the opportunity for granted. But I have to admit that because I can be so unapologetically myself in my work, I sometimes forget that that's far from the norm. One widely cited piece of research found that 61% of people report hiding parts of themselves at work. And the most common form of that was hiding their connection to a particular group. Racial minorities and members of the LGBTQ community had particularly high rates of this self-suppression. We'll put a link to the research, which was a joint effort by an NYU law professor and a principal from Deloitte, a well-known accounting firm, in the show notes. Offering people, especially marginalized people, whose histories have been attempted to be erased, opportunities to learn and to pursue their career aspirations according to their own interests and talents is essential. Those we spoke with brought home again and again the importance of empowering people to pursue their own authentic paths and empowering communities to discover the talents and gifts of the individuals who comprise them. At the same time, certain communities are being marginalized within educational spaces, workplaces, and all of society, and acknowledging that is essential if we want to change it. Rachel Lauren, a DEI practitioner, shared about how in her work, she goes into professional environments and challenges people to get honest about how colorism and racism create structural barriers to success. There are a lot of exercises that I do in different trainings. For example, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's like a survey that you can hand out where people will, it's almost like a scoring system where people will put points for everything that they can identify with. And they can be questions like, when I move into my neighborhood, I'm accepted. Or when I'm looking for a loan for a home, race doesn't play a role in whether I receive the loan. I can go to a grocery store and find items that relate to my ethnicity or my culture easily. And oftentimes what you find by the end of that survey, I'll have people line up in a circle and you'll, you will literally see the racial privilege in the room. You will see that the access starts on the white side. I've done that practice so many times where I've literally seen, like we talked about colorism, that even play a role in how people line up. And what I always do after that exercise also is ask questions. Who here's a manager? Who here has bachelors? Who here just different things? And it, it is amazing to see how many people, unfortunately, on the side of color have all of these accomplishments, but cannot say that they have the accolades that mm. some of the other individuals have. It just really shows how society has been built. There's no denying that structural privilege is baked into society and that in the U.S. and elsewhere, privilege is overwhelmingly tied to color, access to opportunities and identity, including race. That's demonstrated in so many harrowing statistics. The average white American holds six times as much wealth as a black American. The racial wealth gap in this country has only increased since 1980. And Latinx women will earn just 54 cents on the dollar of a white man, just to share a few of them. In hearing those statistics, I can't help but think about the fact that stats about biracial and multiracial people may or may not be represented accurately in the data. It's hard to get a sense of where we fall and how our experiences are reflective of or not reflective of or even skew the numbers. Right. Some of us biracial and multiracial people have access to opportunities that our monoracial BIPOC counterparts may not. Sandra Clark, the CEO of StoryCorps, told me that for her, being biracial has led to access to certain spaces and proximity to power and privilege, while at the same time putting her in uncomfortable workplace situations. 
It's always complicated because as a biracial person too, but white people are comfortable around you. And so you hear both some of the negative things that are said, and then your calculation is always, at what point do I pick this fight? As I've grown and matured and just seen more, because the reality is, is that so much of these worlds, we don't get to see at all. And so that's what I've been able to do is see these worlds, right? I know how people roll in higher places, not the highest sometimes, but in higher places. And that's both a place where some of the battles, the closer you get to power and the closer you get to money, the bigger the battle really is. And so your battle going up is sometimes nothing compared to when you're actually in those circles and at the table and you're going, well, damn, now I got to level up in a whole different kind of way. Surrounded by people who have never walked in my shoes, but I've pretty much have walked in theirs. I can relate to Sandra's complicated feelings about attaining access to spaces where I'm one of the few people of color. When I got accepted into Brown University, I was the beneficiary of affirmative action, but I often question whether I should be due to some of my privileges. And that's the thing about being biracial and having access to different spaces. It may be easier for some of us to understand where monoracial people are coming from than for them to understand us. Of course, that's not unilaterally true. Many people with multiracial ancestry identify as monoracial. So I'm not making sweeping generalizations, but simply saying that being someone who has exposure to different monoracial experiences and communities was something that came up in a lot of our interviews. People shared that increased access gave them perhaps increased empathy and opportunities, but that it also led to feelings of alienation, loneliness, and othering. Our hope in sharing these stories is to prompt anyone listening, whether multiracial or not, to think about how our society is structured and how the places where we spend most of our time, like school and work, impact the psyches and self-conceptions of those of us who come from more than one racial background. Thank you for listening to this episode of the On Being Biracial podcast. Be sure to subscribe now so you'll hear our remaining six episodes and please rate and review the podcast. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees. You can find their names on our website, onbeingbiracial.com, along with information on our partners and supporters. And thank you to our amazing producer, editor, and fact checker, Emily Previty, and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Kondo, our outstanding editor and producer. Special thanks to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, for their significant financial support that made this project possible, and Jean Son, their director of collaborations. And thank you to everyone who has bought us a coffee so far this season. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes in case you'd like to contribute. But by far, the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and until next time.